had the fun of being, sorry, hang on. <laughs> the fun of being the intern here at Artisan Church uh, since last September, so coming up in a year. And this is actually my last time preaching on staff, formally. Um, my internship's coming to an end. The church picnic on the 4th will be my last day. Um, I'll be on the, on the preaching calendar a couple more times before Christmas as I finish up my last year of my master's degree at Regent College. But I wanted to acknowledge that and just um, thank you all for providing me with such a safe place to learn and make mistakes and stumble and fix music stands. Um, <laughs> thank you. I just wanted to thank you all. I really, I wanted to come here and learn, especially after the milestone statement. I, I heard about it. I'd been aware of Artisan Church for many years and that was released. I wanted to come and to learn from this community. And I think I've really been able to do that. And I'm gonna be here around still for many, many months to come. I'm not leaving, this isn't goodbye. But since I have the microphone this morning, I did wanna take a moment to thank you all. It's been fantastic. And I've loved getting to know people. I know there's two different sets of newlyweds here this morning, so congrats to you guys. And it's just, there's these fun things where I get to learn about the community and learn from you all. And hopefully I haven't messed anything up too badly in the last year. Um, but yeah, I had my first in-person preaching experience. It'll be a year in October, and I think it's only gotten better since then, hopefully. Usually Toga like comes up to me, I'm just like, you're just getting better. Thanks, Toga. Um, yeah, Jenny, pass it along. Big thanks to him. Thank you. Yeah, so just, that's, I wanted to start with that this morning. Very grateful, very grateful for a safe place to fail and to stumble. Um, yeah. Moving on, uh, we're gonna get into things, but first, it's the Sabbath, it's the day of rest. It's just what Sabbath means, biblically. Um, so I wanted to take a moment for us to be still, to be quiet, to take a breath, to function at a different pace. Maybe you're a parent and you don't get a lot of still and quiet where you don't have little ones hanging on to you. So I invite you to take whatever posture feels good. If you wanna lay flat on the floor, go for it. If you wanna stand up, go for it. Whatever feels good. You're gonna take a moment to be still, as quiet as possible, and acknowledge that we are not only invited, but actually instructed to rest once a week out of the knowledge that we are limited, created beings. We're dependent on a creator, a source, a Lord, and that Lord calls us beloved and worthy of rest, regardless of what we have or have not done in the week that's past or the week that's coming. usually not quite that quiet when we do that. That was lovely. All right, now we'll get into things. Um, about two weeks ago, we heard Nelson preach on the kingdom of God from Luke 12, and he really importantly pointed out that Jesus uses metaphors to describe it. 
it's always the kingdom of God is like. It's never the kingdom of God is this. And last week, we heard Blythe preach a really challenging text from Isaiah, so kudos to her. And at its core, it convicts our tendency towards scarcity mentality. It happened in ancient biblical times, and it still happens here today and now, especially in Vancouver. It's a very real and present challenge for each of us to trust that we have and are enough, thanks to God's reliable and steady love. And what does this have to do with what I'm preaching about today? Well, Luke 13, 10 to 17 is a passage that at first glance doesn't have like a ton of depth. It's not particularly memorable. It's a pretty common story from the Gospels. It's very ordinary. And I don't think I'm going to be saying anything extraordinary this morning. I think it's going to be pretty ordinary. Um, it's kind of like a, like a meat and potatoes dish or like a, like a chicken and rice kind of dish, depending on what your standard is. Um, it's pretty common. Jesus is teaching. He heals someone. Some local religious person gets mad about it. He rebukes them. And what rebuke means is just he criticizes them in a way that calls them out and calls them to do better. And then there's a parable or another scene that complements it. It's pretty standard. Um, so sure enough, right before the passage we're looking at today, in the first chunk of chapter 13, there's a scene where these people are talking about this tragedy of 18 people who just died. And there's this question of whether or not they died because they were sinful, that they deserve it. And Jesus essentially makes it clear that suffering, pain, even death, is not necessarily the direct result of sin in people's lives. That's what we call the prosperity gospel. And that ties a lot into what Blythe taught about last Sunday. And this, what comes right after the scripture that we're going to look at are these three verses where Jesus says, The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that turns into a tree where birds take shelter, like yeast worked into bread that spreads and causes it to rise and expand. The kingdom of God is like. All right, so let's read the actual chunk of scripture again. We already had it read this morning, and this time we're just going to read it from my personal go-to, the CEB, the Common English Bible. So I think it's going to be up on the screen for you to follow. So verse 10. Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. A woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and couldn't stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said, Woman, you are set free from your sickness. He placed his hands on her and she straightened up at once and praised God. The synagogue leader, incensed that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded, There are six days during which work is permitted. Come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath day. The Lord replied, Hypocrites! Don't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from its stall and lead it out to get a drink? Then isn't it necessary that this woman, a daughter of Abraham, bound by Satan for 18 long years, be set free from her bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said all these things, all his opponents were put to shame, but all those in the crowd rejoiced at all the extraordinary things he was doing. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, so like I said, this probably isn't anyone's favorite or most memorable story of Jesus, but there are a lot of rich layers to what's going on here. Another example I use to describe this is kind of like a chocolate layer cake or like a sprinkle vanilla cake. It's classic, it's basic, there's layers, it's still good. Um, so as we're going through this, 
I'm going to go through it verse by verse, excavating or exegeting, if we're going to use fancy words, each of those layers. And as I go, I invite you to keep asking yourself as you're listening, first question, why is the story in the Bible? Why is it here? Why are we reading it all these thousands of years later? And then secondly, what is the good news, or in other words, the gospel, in this story for the people in the story, but also for us today? So good questions to ask yourself whenever you're reading any chunk of the Bible. All right, so we're going to get into it. Verse 10 just sets the stage. Jesus is teaching in the place where Jewish people gather to learn and hang out on Saturdays. This is called the synagogue. And Saturdays is what they call the Sabbath, which is the day they take to rest from all work. And this was instructed in the Ten Commandments, which you can read in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. We now generally observe Sabbath on Sundays because it's the day that Jesus rose from the dead, Easter Sunday. It is worth bunny trailing very quickly to point out that Jesus is teaching, says the Greek, not necessarily preaching, and that just goes to show that they're used very interchangeably throughout the Bible. So if there's ever any thought about like who can preach or teach, just know that they're used interchangeably. And then missing from verse 11, importantly, from this translation is the Greek word idu, which means behold or look. And I wish the CEB included this because it tells us as readers and listeners, hey, listen up. It's kind of like a camera lens shifting focus or panning over or maybe even zooming into the woman that's pointed out. And the verse tells us that she's had a disability for 18 years that causes her to not be able to straighten her back or stand up. And it says that it's caused by a spirit. That's not gonna be the main focus today, but scholar N.T. Wright's commentary here is really helpful. He basically argues and makes some crucial observations that unpack a pretty significant layer for us when we read verses like this. He argues that this woman, though she's not named, which is pretty unusual for the writer Luke, Luke loves names, loves names. I don't know if that Luke loves names, but this Luke loves names. He would be known, this woman would be known by the community and the people around her. She's been this way for 18 years, um, almost two decades. We don't know whether or not she recognizes Jesus as the Messiah or Christ, or if she even believes in him. We just know that she's with the synagogue crowd. And Wright points out that Luke was saying she was disabled by a spirit, and that most likely means her condition just couldn't be medically explained. And that's worth noting because people generally agree that the writer Luke would have been a doctor, so if there was a medical explanation, he probably would have known about it. So if there's no obvious reason that he would have known of or another doctor would have known of, especially after 18 years, they would have just called it a spirit. That's just common for those days. And it's important to remember that anyone with an illness would have been viewed as unclean by the Jewish community and therefore be marginalized in some capacity, right? They don't belong the way they thought that they should be belonging. And knowing that she's marginalized in some way uncovers a layer in verse 12. Jesus sees her, he sees her. He sees the marginalized woman with a disability in the crowd, calls her to come toward him out of everyone else. For imagining this like a movie scene with the camera lens shifting, focused, or panning, then this is like the camera 
now focusing on Jesus, and he's in the middle of the crowd, and he's like maybe the guy in like the cheesy 90s, early 2000s rom-com that like, is like, hey, Paul, I'm gonna look at you, okay? He's just like, hey, you. And then she's like, who, me? Yeah, exactly. And then he's like, you, right? He calls her toward him, and that's what's happening here. Obviously, that's not what happened, but you get my point. Jesus, like usual, is doing something unexpected. He has the attention, and he uses that attention to bring those on the outside in. And there are four verbs, four actions of Jesus is here. He sees, he calls, he speaks, and then he touches in verse 13. The woman does nothing to receive the healing except accepting it. Remember the story that came before this that I very quickly mentioned. There was 18 people who died and there was a question of whether or not their sin had anything to do with it. We know nothing about this woman's history. Maybe that's why she's left unnamed, to leave it a mystery. And she doesn't plead or beg or approach or even ask humbly. No one's doing this for her. She just comes forward when Jesus calls to her to do so. He then speaks healing over her with the healing actually taking place once he touches her. And there are a couple layers, a couple bits of good news for us to learn from these couple of verses. First of all, Jesus' healing is not dependent on our behavior or faith. Yes, the Bible invites, encourages, and even instructs us to pray for what we want from God, even healing, including healing. Most definitely, the book of James, there's some great verses there. The Bible does say those things, and it's definitely not wrong to pray for healing for yourself or someone else. We have the power of God, the Holy Spirit within us, after all. But, important but, there is no way to earn or work for or manipulate or force it. It's reminded me of Blythe's sermon. When we're afraid we don't have enough, if we have a need or see someone else's need, we want a method, a system, a guaranteed way to have and be enough. We want a stockpile. We want to control when we have scarcity mentality. An abundance mentality will remind us that we are enough and have enough because God loves us that much. I'll be honest, I don't know why this woman was healed and not someone else. I don't know why Jesus chose her. We don't know if she's the one who suffered the most or the longest or anything. And I don't know why Jesus still today heals some and not others. I wish I could tell you. But yeah, Jesus doesn't always heal people, at least not the way we pray for them or want them to be healed. I do know that healing is not the result of our actions, only God's. And I do think that's good news. I do. I am convinced that that is good news because if there were a formula for it, or if it were dependent on our behavior, it wouldn't be a gift anymore. It wouldn't be a gift anymore. And it wouldn't be the same and we wouldn't be the same because then we would have the formula. We would have the way to figure it out. We would be in control. And the second layer in verse 12 and 13 is that though healing is declared and spoken over the woman first, the actual healing doesn't take place until Jesus touches her. I don't know about you, but when I hear a story about a man touching a woman, I don't think automatically it's something miraculous or healing. 
That's because you and I live in a world, though called good at its creation, and I believe is still very good today, has been invaded also by the opposite of good. Each of us humans was given free will to choose, and that means we choose wrong sometimes. We miss the mark, which is what the word sin means, we getting it wrong, missing the right thing. And the good news here is that when Jesus touches, though, Jesus' touch doesn't cause fear, pain, suffering, or trauma. It causes healing, freedom, life, and belonging. It is a good touch. Just like the world doesn't always feel good today, not all touch feels good. But Jesus created the world and calls it good. And Jesus is the person whose touch can be healing and good. The woman is now made clean according to Jewish rites and will no longer be marginalized due to her disability thanks to that touch. Her response, rightly, is to praise God and to express gratitude. And I think we know this, but this woman should have belonged fully in community even before she was healed. Jesus' healing isn't endorsing her ostracism, her marginalization. Instead, he's telling us that in his kingdom, all who come to him are worthy and belong. And he's working to right the wrong of her marginalization to make that right, to make that happen. This beautiful, miraculous event is met with indignation by the synagogue leader. He is incensed, says verse 14. He says, hey Jesus, there are six days to work. Do this kind of thing, do your healing then, not on the day of rest. He actually says, be healed not do your healing. So then maybe he's actually speaking to the woman. Maybe he's mad at her for being healed, not at Jesus. It's not entirely clear. So we should ask ourselves, what's really going on here? We often read about Pharisees or other religious leaders like scribes or synagogue rulers getting upset with Jesus. Why? What's their deal? What's the good news here? Well, let's make it modern. Let's imagine the synagogue leader is a pastor of a typical church. We don't know where the synagogue is, but given it's the synagogue leader and not some Pharisee leader or a scribe or a legal expert, chances are we're not in this city. We're a little bit more rural, maybe in a village or a town. You're starting to see some of those layers of this, of this cake. Jesus shows up in a church where the local pastor is used to being in control having the most authority and being in charge, used to making sure that everyone is following the rules the way they think they should, the way they always have. It's a power struggle here in verse 14 to see who is in control, who's Lord of that religious place. Verse 15 answers that question for us, who Lord is. As Luke writes, the Lord replied. In verse 10, when we started this, he just talks about Jesus. But here, Luke is identifying for us who the wise, trustworthy, and authoritative voice is, who's in charge. And what does Jesus, the Lord, the person with the power and the authority, do? How does he respond? Well, first of all, he calls them hypocrites. Who they are exactly, since the word is plural, we don't know, but presumably anyone who's upset with him or with the woman. And why does he call them hypocrites? Because they untie their oxen or donkeys on the Sabbath and bring them to water. Like, okay, we don't understand what that means today. <laughs> but I'm going to explain it to you. Because remember how the Ten Commandments are in, Deuter in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5? Well, in Deuteronomy 5.14, it 
It says, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, one of the Ten Commandments, we know. On it, you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. It's a day of equality. Everyone gets to rest. Everything gets to rest. In other words, the Sabbath instruction, the Sabbath law, to rest from work applies to animals as well. And actually, if we were going to really get into this, it applies to soil and plants as well. And I think that's really cool. Like Leviticus, I know, is kind of crazy, but there's so much in there about creation here, friends. And I can recommend a long list of books that we can read. And all this is to me is that it shows us how important creation care is. It tells us as Christ followers how to deal with environmental crises of our day. The answers to that are actually in the Bible, and they're in Leviticus, which I know is not the most popular book of the Bible. I get it. There's some weird and gross things in there, but it's there, and I think that's really cool. So, getting back to it. Little bunny trail coming back. Jesus isn't saying it's bad to give animals water on the Sabbath, right? Deuteronomy 5 tells us that Jesus cares about the animals and the soil and the plants, too. Rather... When the law was written, when the Israelites were nomads living in tents, right? They were wandering through the desert when this happened. Animals were likely not kept inside. It's likely they were kept outside and watered without being moved. They were probably just close to a bucket of water by the well. At the historical time of this occurrence, though, in Luke, it's argued by Kenneth Bailey, I think is the scholar. Um, it's argued that animals were kept inside the single room stone homes that people lived and slept and ate in, the animals were with them overnight. So when the morning comes, Saturday morning, they have to untie those animals and take them outside for water because they don't want to share their home with animals all day long. And those are big animals. On top of that, there were rules the Pharisees made on top of these passages from generation after generation after originally being taught by Moses that said, in addition to the Sabbath instruction with the Ten Commandments, um, it instructs humans not to tie or untie knots, specifically, or to lead animals to water. Those instructions were not given from Yahweh to Moses and then passed along through the writings. That was written by religious leaders over the years and how they interpreted scripture. They added it in top. Does any of this sound familiar? When we're asking what the good news is for today, does this sound familiar? Are we picking up what I'm putting down? Power struggles between religious rulers and Jesus, or interpretations of scripture being turned into additional onerous or burdensome instructions? See how Jesus brought the good news then, and how his words continue to bring us good news now. This is why we have these ordinary stories in the Bible, and why knowing how to read the Bible is so crucial. Let's keep going with this in mind to the second part of Jesus' response in verse 16. He's calling them, his opponents, hypocrites, because they've done work as defined by both Torah and the Pharisaical laws. They worked on the Sabbath, but called Jesus out for healing, a form of work on the Sabbath too. So after that, he doubles down his defense for working to heal a woman on the Sabbath because she's a daughter of Abraham bound for 18 years, tied for 18 years, 
So isn't it right for her to be set free, for her to be untied on the Sabbath? Right? So even if he's playing by the Pharisees' additional rules, isn't it still right for, her, for him to do this? So Jesus calling the woman a daughter of Abraham does two things, two extra layers. One, it identifies her very clearly as a neighbor. Because remember the Good Samaritan story from Luke 10, so just a couple chapters before this? And if you don't, that's okay. There were two priests, the Levites, who don't help the Jewish man who was robbed, beaten, and left for dead, naked in a ditch. But the Samaritan, the sworn enemy, comes by and saves him. So in this story, she's very clearly not a Samaritan. She's very clearly Jewish. She's a daughter of Abraham. She's not only a neighbor, she's family. So there's no reason for us not to help her, is what Jesus is saying. And then secondly, he names her as a daughter and worthy of being set free because she's human. She's created, yes, but she's not a creature the way donkeys or oxen or cows are creatures. She's made in the image of God. The same image Jesus took on when he came into this world, when God became incarnate. This is important because the place of women, especially women with disabilities, would often be as they were treated less, they were treated as less important than good cattle. That's why this is important. Jesus here is calling out that wrong mentality and he's elevating her as a daughter belonging in the kingdom far more than any animal. The good news here, the gospel, is not only for that woman's status in that day, but for all of us here too. Us humans, all of us in God's likeness are indisputably valuable and worthy without doing anything at all except existing. Because remember, the woman hasn't done anything to earn this healing. She didn't ask, no one asked for her, nothing is said of her faith or her wrongdoings or her right doings. She was present and came to him when he called. She is worthy because she exists. And this little story ends again, like the scene in the cheesy rom-com movie from the early, early 2000s, maybe late 90s. In verse 17, says that after Jesus rebukes the religious leaders, all his opponents were put to shame, but the crowd rejoiced in celebration and all of his awesome things, all these awesome things Jesus was doing. Real feel-good ending. Like if it's like Cinderella's story or she's all bad, like the jocks are embarrassed and everyone else is like, yeah, she's going to be the prom queen. You can tell what I did growing up. It's okay. Anyway, it's worth pointing out that there's a similar episode in Luke 6, 1 to 10, where Jesus heals a man with a shriveled hand. The story isn't quite the same. There's no feel-good ending the way there is here. But the reason I point it out is because whenever there's a repeated or similar story in Scripture, it means that the point of that story is important enough for us to hear multiple times. It means that we're meant to keep this in mind. We're meant to internalize this message. So overall, what is the message? What is the point of this story and others like it? Well, keeping in mind the stories that come before and after, the people tragically dying and the kingdom is like, let's ask ourselves the same questions I started with. Why are these stories in the Bible? And what was the good news then? And what is the good news now? Maybe you have answers for these questions as I've been rambling. But this is what N.T. Wright, again, says. What Jesus is doing for this poor woman 
is what he's longing to do for Israel as a whole. The enemy, the accuser, has had Israel in his power for these many years, and Jesus' kingdom message is the one thing that can free her. But Israel's insistence on tight boundaries, including the rigid application of the Sabbath law, is preventing it happening. Unless the kingdom message heals her, there is no hope. There are many layers to this story and many reasons why it's in the Bible, despite it being ordinary and repeated and kind of common and not memorable. I don't know if it's right to say that about the Bible, but I did. One, it makes it clear that the marginalized belong in God's family, in the kingdom of God, in Jesus' family, regardless of disabilities, gender, or sex. If someone wants to be present with Jesus, they are welcome. Full stop. Secondly, it also makes clear that each of us are worthy of being untied, set free, without doing anything to earn or deserve it or to figure out the formula. It's a gift. We don't have to strive. We don't have to hustle. We get to rest. And thirdly, it makes it clear that Jesus is it. He is Lord. He is the one who has the final say, not religious leaders. Religious leaders like myself and anyone else who leads in this church or any other church, we're human. I had instant coffee this morning, okay? That is, that is like confession. And I know that's like maybe some of you are like, oh, I always have instant coffee. That's fine. But some mornings I can't be bothered for pour over coffee. And I'm like, I'm human. I'm lazy, guys. And like, it's just good to remember that. We're not the ones, we're not it. We're not the ones with the final say. God is the one with the authority. He is the one, or she's the one, whatever you're comfortable with, who created everything. The one who has the final say on everything. God is Lord. God is in charge, not us. Not even the religious leaders. This is the good news then, and continues to be the good news now. 